to the Career Row Podcast. I'm Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Marie Cordona. Marie is an environmental engineer and has been working in consulting for over 20 years. A California native, she divides her time between the U.S. and Canada, currently residing in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her passions include travel, music, photography, social activism, and hoarding coffee mugs. Hi, Marie. Thanks for being our guest today. Uh, so you are an environmental engineer. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Because I think we hear that term a lot, but we don't actually know what it means. Yeah, sure. In fact, about a week ago, someone actually asked me what that was because he said, oh, you're an engineer. And I said, yes. And he said, what kind is it environmental? And I kind of got a stare and he goes, what is that exactly? So uh, so basically, I would, I would say take civil engineering uh, maybe a little bit of petrochemical engineering, but you're basically just applying engineering principles to um, to help mitigate or prevent, uh, um, you know, p- pollution. So you've got things like air pollution control, you know, um, air quality management, water pollution control. Um, when I when I started uh, college, I was actually one of the first classes where they had an entirely separate major for just environmental engineering. It used to be at USC anyway. It used to be uh, a type of civil engineering. Where you could do like a civil engineering major with an emphasis in environmental. So really, um, yeah, it's, it's it's all those things. It's it's land management, it's resource management, um, air pollution control, you know, water water quality, water chemistry, things like that. So things that would basically um, where where you would be, um, you know, developing systems to kind of align with or work with, you know, just our natural resources and our and things we want to protect effectively. Are you finding so you could so you could and I have you you could have like an environmental group or environmental engineers working alongside like a, um, an oil and gas company or a proponent or any type of energy proponent um, to kind of ensure that you know uh, uh, federal regulations are being followed, environmental principles of that proponent are being met. Um, engagement is going on at the, the state or municipal level, and that's that's kind of where I've been at the last few years. I would imagine that that latter part that you talked about is probably growing and probably a little bit more um, pre- prevalent now than maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago, right? Like we see all these movies and documentaries that are made where these companies just kind of did whatever they wanted with their waste and whatever. So is that sort of the case? Yeah, I mean... I, I, at minimum, a proponent has to follow the laws on the books. So in the U.S. and Canada, there is a federal uh, framework. In the U.S., for example, there's what's called the National Environment, Environmental Policy Act. And that was actually, I think, signed by Nixon. You wouldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Some of the, some, you wouldn't think it now, mm-hmm. but um, some of the key environmental framework and federal laws were actually signed by Republican presidents. I wouldn't expect that necessarily now, but um, they were. And there was an environmental movement that started, I, I'm thinking like in the late 60s, mainly started in Europe. Uh, an author, Rachel Carson, wrote a book called Silent Spring in the 60s. There was, there was a whole civil rights movement. And um, that is when I think a lot of the key federal framework was passed into the late 60s and early 70s. And then there was a, a bit of a, um, a um, but there was kind of an environmental movement in the 70s, a little bit quiet in the 80s. And then when I was a teenager, kind of coming of age as a young adult in the 90s, it kind of made made a bit of a comeback. So, you know, and I think that might have been what motivated some universities to make environmental engineering its own major. And so, yeah, to your point, I think there were um, over the last 
decades and even centuries since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, our, our fossil fuels have been highly exploited. And you have a case, you have many cases historically where energy proponents kind of did whatever they want. And it could be that we just didn't know better back then. But now, you know, in, as the decades went on and we've been able to educate ourselves on the harmful effects of the, of the huge amount of consumption of these fossil fuels and resources, now, now that we know better, we can do better. But yeah, um, at minimum, any proponent will have to follow the laws of the books. I think where you get in some of the controversial areas, you know, you might have read the controversies about the Keystone Pipeline. Right. I did not. I did not work on that project. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about it from a professional level, but I, some of the little bits I've read, um, some of the criticism has stemmed from that proponent maybe trying to shortcut um, some of the avenues that would would normally be required for a, a big project like that, and that, um, and so that a lot of people who had concerns about the corridor and that and that pipeline did not get their voices heard. And just a little bit I've read, um, it, it's, it seemed like there would be a strong case to for that point. But I read it, read it again. But yeah, you you do have situations like that where some of the more controversial projects are controversial because a lot of the voices aren't being heard. And so um, where I kind of come in, you know, interestingly, even with an engineering background, I don't, I do not do a lot of design. What's been happening over, I've been doing consulting for 20 years now, the cap I've kind of worn has been largely along the lines of environmental permitting and the environmental studies that go along with obtaining permits at the federal and state and, and city and local level. So by def by default, when you have to combine the engineering teams that actually do all the design and and all of the environmental studies that go along with that, you kind of it's good to have someone that kind of can kind of speak both languages. So that's that's kind of where I, I come in. Yeah, you know, and and uh, one of the things that that people won't won't know is that just by just by listening um that we're you know related we're cousins um one one of the things that that i was that i was interested in uh, when when you were first going off to college and, and you wanted wanted to become an engineer i was like oh hey great you know we're gonna have an engineer um but but what what was it that how did you become interested in in what I think is kind of like a smaller field of, of engineering. Um, yeah. So, so was, was this something within, within high school that you were, you were interested in or, or once you went to USC, can you, can you talk about that? And, and the reason being is that many, um, many of our, of our high school, um, of our high school students that are, that are part of, edX I've, I've been learning that there's a lot of them interested in um, engineering and so and so if you if you answer this kind of phrase it with with a high school mind and just so that they could understand a little bit more well for me you know environmental issues just sort of grabbed my heart you know I like like I mentioned I was sort of coming in age in, in the 90s I want to say and when you start to learn about you know habitat destruction, or, you know, you know, back then it was, you know, it was endangered species and, and, you know, rainforest depletion. Those were just things that just sort of grabbed me. And I think any high school student, you know, you're so young and it, it's very possible that, you know, you may venture into something in college and then change your mind later and that does happen. And so, but for me, environmental issues were just always something I, I, I cared about that I wanted to learn more about. 
Um, my parents certainly had that interest. My mom, my mom, if, you know, if the odd person from Greenpeace or whoever was came knocking on the door, she'd always invite them in, <laughs> give them some water or whatever. So, but, you know, but we, I, I was kind of exposed to, I think a lot of that, um, you know, environmental justice and whatnot. Um, I think I was also exposed to kind of like the unfair exposure of environmental issues to marginalized communities. You know, a lot of, you know, you, you would have, there's, there's, there are court cases that date back a few decades ago where, where uh, folks and corporations were, you know, storing and, and dumping hazardous waste in kind of low income areas. And a lot of these people didn't even know. And so there was, uh, there was, you know, human rights injustice, in my in my opinion. Um, I, I do believe in habitat protection. I, I do believe in trying to, you know, work towards a more, you know, sustainable, you know, um, work more towards sustainable energy sources. And then I think for me, um, it, it was just, it was just something that I just became passionate about and interested. And then when I was choosing a major, honestly, engineering was sort of like competing with, um, something I was actually considering also English lit, but I didn't really know what I would do with it. Yeah. I was just, I was like, I'm a major in English lit, but okay. But, but a lot of reading goes into what you're doing. Right. So like, yeah, it, for it makes yeah, sense for sure. that you would be drawn to those. Uh, also, yeah. And I, it's, it seems like a little bit of, you're also like kind of part lawyer in a way, right? Because there's so much yeah. law involved in this, probably almost more so than any other engineering field. Is that, am I understanding that right? I think I think when I started, I mean, like I said, they had they had just made it its own major. I, I think there will always be a demand for it. I mean, there's always going to be um, there's always going to be a need for an energy source, whether it be non-renewables or renewables or whatnot, um, in the U.S., in Canada, and also a lot of countries that are sort of just you know coming to their own. You know that, that that's gonna this is always going to be an issue. The management of our resources, um, the competing needs of other countries. Um, we've got our a population, a global population that's continuing to grow. Um, energy needs are going to certainly going to align with that. So I, I think there's also going to there's always going to be a need for um, environmental engineers and, and consultants and, and scientists to have a seat at the table. And I and I hope and I hope that we do. You know, there are situations where I don't feel I feel like we don't. But I think I think when you're a young person, you know, I'm. It's gosh, looking back to when I was 18, it's, um, you know, I kind of just, I, I had an interest in it. And then the environmental engineering aspect just seemed to be a logical way to kind of, to kind of channel my interests into a profession. And I would say for high school students that want to be, that want to be engineers, um, and this is kind of as a credit to what you guys do, I would say that some of the key things were you know, having a good advisor, a mentor to answer, have any, answer any questions you might have. Um, take a look at the curriculum you'll be studying because it is, it is quite intense. Uh, when you do join an engineering school, there is usually just a, you know, there's always like a certain percentage of students that end up changing majors because mm -hmm. they just end up not liking it. And, um, you know, ha have a support system and then maybe have a little bit of an idea of what you want to do after, you know, after university is done. So, you know, have, you know, have a little bit of a plan. Um, the stuff I have done in the last, you know, 20 years, 
is not what I expected, but but in a good way. And I think that's one of the the cool things about, you know, a career choice is is the little surprises that come along the way. You know, you you might learn things. You know, you learn you do things in the laboratory or in a classroom in college, and once you get out into the real world and start working, you might find yourself in avenues or situations where you're like, oh, you know, that that looks kind of cool as well. So that that has kind of what happened. Um, I did briefly intern for LA County when I was in college, but I've only ever done consulting. And so the good thing about consulting is you get to work with all different kinds of clients, and you get to wear a lot of different kind of hats, you know, depending on the project you're working on. So I certainly don't regret my choice, but I think, but when you're young, I would say, um, you know, mentorship, support system, ask a lot of questions, be aware of the curriculum you're going to be, you know, enrolling yourself in, um, but also, you know, cut yourself some slack. It's, it's a bit of a growing process as well, for sure. Um, during this time, um, during during the 90s, as you know, you were um, looking at engineering, and 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 you went to quite quite honestly one of the, one of the more renowned engineering schools, um, you know, which is a great tribute to you. Were there many females in, in, enrolled in in engineering at that time? Uh, no. Um... So then how was that? How, how were you treated? You know, was there, was there any differences? And then, and then once you got out in, into the real world, um, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so when I first started in, in engineering, I, my graduating class, I will say was about probably at USC was about 10% women, my graduating class. Um, my first two years, you know, as you guys know, when you're kind of taking like your introductory courses, you could be in a, an auditorium with a few hundred people in biology or chemistry, or whatever. There's all different kinds of majors. So it, it was a bit more mixed. But as I got into more my niche engineering classes, it was, I was oftentimes the only female in the room. Oh. Um, as far, uh, maybe there might've been like, you know, two or three, but we were oftentimes less than 10% of the class. I after a while, I just sort of got used to it. Generally, I would say um, I was always treated fine. Um, the odd occasional, maybe weird situation, but um, generally I was treated fine. Um, my understanding is now that women are making up maybe like one in five of engineering undergrad, okay. which is good, but I'm wondering why it isn't more. And actually, on that note, I might have a question for, for you guys. So I, I was actually reading something recently about, about the one in five, and that applies to both in the U.S. and Canada. Hmm. But it seems to be sort of a Western North American thing. Uh, you know, we women were actually discouraged from studying engineering or sciences. You know, a, a couple hundred years ago, they even said something like it would affect our fertility or some <laughs> Yes. But anyway, but we have that that heritage of just kind of women being left out or not being encouraged to study science or engineering. But yet um, in countries maybe like India mm -hmm. or even in Iran, women actually make up half or even in Iran, I think I read recently, even a little bit more than half of the majors of science and engineering. Iranian women are very educated. In India, um, boys and girls are encouraged to study science because they, 
they're very well-respected careers. And I, and, you know, people may stereotype some of these countries as being backwards in some sense or third world or whatever, but it seems like in these, this little niche area, they're actually doing quite, quite well when it comes to educating women in fields where, frankly, in North America, we're a little bit lagging. And I guess a question for you guys, what, what would, what do you think would drive that as educators? You know, what, what could this be just a, a could it be that these countries are coming of age in a time where um, they're kind of it's 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 beneficial to their own economy and their own education to kind of always encourage girls as well? Or what do you, why do you think it makes us different? Why do you think it's different in the Western world? Yeah, I mean, I think you pose a really, really good question. I think we're working on that because we have a lot of like girls in STEM programs that we're um, trying to you know launch and initiate right now. I think it is a growing field, um, and there's a lot more work for marginalized communities to have more um, people from those communities engaged in the STEM field as well. Uh, but it just it takes a while to catch up. I mean, you can look at uh, the European countries and um, and see that they even have women in leadership. They've had women in leadership, women presidents, prime ministers. You know, in all of those high level um politic in the politics and yet we still struggle to you know vote a woman as president or you know put women in ceo positions and things like that so yeah i, I think it's more based in and rooted um issues in the way that we've mar like we as americans have marginalized women um rather than just in engineering fields or math or science fields it's it's broader bigger than that i think we're working on it um because now we're we're talking about it right so that's kind yeah, of yeah definitely the thing is yeah. that before we wouldn't talk about it and if you talked about it or complained about it then you were you know seen as just not being thankful or grateful for being allowed to be in the workplace yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's also difficult as a as a man to to label one oneself as feminist uh, because all all feminist feminism is is that we want equal rights for everyone, uh, and you would think, and that would have, that has so many benefits for women and men. Yeah. So you think yeah, it was and, and and I remember, uh, you know, because if you were to look at our at our podcast, um, they're mostly females, um, and I purposely do that um, just just because of what my belief system is is that yes, we've been mar you know marginalizing women and women of color for hundreds of years. Um, I think, I think one of the problems having, having benefited, um, and then, you know, both of you could talk about this too, is I, I've been benefited to, to travel around the world and, you know, talk to leaders and government officials. One of the things that they, that they worry about, even when they're promoting, um, uh, science, science and engineering is brain drain. They don't want their their own. Yeah. They want them to stay. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's one of the one of the major major issues that they're that they're going through. But what they're but what they're also hoping is that if if their if their female population is able to leave um, and go work, then to come back home and to train the next the next generation. I think we're we're so stuck in a um, in a 
in a day and age that we haven't changed our way of thinking. I mean, it's things, things have gotten better. I, you know, I want to say, uh, I want to say that, but, but still there's, there's those powers that be that are, are still lost from 100 years ago in, in just their, just their way of thinking. Yeah. And so when we're promoting things like STEM, when we're promoting things like STEAM, um, I, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are, that are for it, but I, as a, as a male, I've, I've found when I'm promoting things like women's, women's conferences, females look at me like, why do you want to do that? This is like, like, this is our domain. This is what we should be doing. We don't, we, we don't need a male voice to come in and help, help us. And I'm like, you know, I believe in justice for everyone. It doesn't yeah. matter their gender, um, you know, and, and if I'm able to be a voice, then, you know, and, and then that, then no, I, yeah. When, when I when I said that, I got tarred and feathered. <laughs> so, so it's, damned if you damned if you don't, because if you didn't show support, you might be accused of not being. You yeah, know, not yes, being. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't. I I can understand. That's that's not really that fair. But um, you know, we you know just you know to credit to what to what you're saying, we we have a long way to go. Um, and then we're, we're 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 hoping just through our little neck of the woods with you know edX. That were that were able to do something more. Yeah, I get asked a lot up here in, in Canada about the U.S. You know, um, Canada only has thirty something million, thirty six million. I want to say the national population of Canada. Can, the, the The population of Canada is less than the population of California, so, yeah. and, and it's a massive country. So. Um, you know, I have I have been to all ten provinces, and you you kind of have like your big cities, and then you kind of have your little pockets of small towns. But and and much of the drives I've done around Canada, it's a whole lot of nothing. So you've got this, this population that's kind of spread out. Um, Canada does absolutely have issues with you know misogyny and sexism. I always joke that they just do it more politely. Racism. <laughs> um, they don't necessarily have hard. <laughs> it's true. They just. Um, you know, they may not have, you know, the population of African-Americans that we do, but there is, you know, um, there are indigenous populations that are clearly treated like second class. And I think that um, has become front and center among, you know, in discussions in Canada. But in the U.S., because the U.S. is such a, a huge country, I think it's well, like population, like third in the world, you know, China, India, then the U.S., I believe. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, what I when there's you know, something going on, going on in the U S whether it's our politics or, you know, some, you know, a, a shooting or some sort of a, a, a crisis. And I get looked at, like, explain this, you know, what, what, you know, I, I kind of just say, and, it, or, you know, our, our lack our our slow rate of change in the U S I kind of just say, you know, look, the United States is a really big country. There's a lot of us. And I kind of, I kind of feel like, smaller countries, I don't know, this is probably maybe a very black and white thing to say, but smaller countries may be a little bit more nimble in some ways. We're at the U.S. and at a federal level, I always think of it as sort of a super tanker. You know, you, you go from like California to maybe like another state, say in, say in the South, and you might feel like you're in completely different um, places with completely different little subcultures. And so at the, at the national level to get 
you know, all 50 states on board with like a movement. I, th- I think it can happen, but I kind of feel like the U.S. is a super, a super tanker, for lack of a better metaphor. Once it does start to move a little bit, it will change will hopefully be sustainable, but it t- takes a long time to get there. Whereas, you know, you might go from state to state and it might be a little bit, you know, a little bit more easier in some ways. But um, yeah, I think I think the U.S. is behind on a lot. I, I do think it's changing, but I think that it's, you know, it's, it's stubborn to change in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that's where we need voices like yours, you know, who have seen the differences in other, you know, countries. You're, you're kind of dual citizen, kind of, right? Yeah, anyway. it kind of feels yeah. that way now, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's just it. We just need voices to to advocate for these things. And I, and I think I look at California as being um, a little bit more like European policies when it comes to environment and, um, and just like equality. And I mean, I, obviously we have our own issues and we have places that we need to go, but um, I look at California as, as being better aligned with at the forefront of environmental issues and environmental um, policies. What do you notice as the biggest differences between Canada and the U.S. for environmental laws? There's actually, um, I would say, more similarities than differences. You know, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but, you know, when the environment, environmental movement started, it started mainly in Europe and then it kind of made its way uh, into the U.S. and Canada, like in the 60s and 70s. Canadian law uh, kind of like came into play maybe like a little bit year, a few, some years after the U.S., but a lot of the actual framework is the same. Like uh, our federal framework, you know, is NEPA. Um, Canada also has a federal framework. States are compelled to not only implement the federal laws, you know, up here it's provinces. So at a provincial level, they are not only um, subject to following federal laws, but they can also make their own laws that either comply with the federal law or even make it a little bit stronger. Like to your point, California, California may not, may not only just follow, follow federal law, but they, you know, they may actually put things, um, environmental laws are actually stricter you know, at the state and provincial level. So there's actually more, I would say more similarities than differences. And when I moved up here, you know, really, I, I didn't know a lot about Canadian environmental law. It was kind of like, I did kind of a crash course before moving up here. But what the reason I moved up here was because our Vancouver office does a lot of work with Alaska, you know, it's relatively close by, and with the Pacific Northwest, like Washington and Oregon. So some of the states, um, some of the Pacific Northwest states. So there is an interest and having some, you know, folks from the U.S. and the teams up here. So that's what kind of opened that door. But when I learned about Canadian Canadian environmental law, I actually noticed that it was actually very similar, just kind of called different things. You know, we, you know, we have laws protecting migratory birds. So, you know, so do they. We've got um, the Endangered Species Act. They've got the Species at Risk Act. They, they, it's almost like the exact same process as well. If there's a species that is, is seen to be threatened, whether it be the habitat is being depleted or the species is being overhunted or overfished or whatever, um, they kind of will qualify for various levels of protection. Once they, once they make a particular category of protection, you are compelled by law to implement a project or execute a project with care in mind for that protected species and its habitat. And that's key protecting not just the species, but the habitat as well. You, and they, they really go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So um, I would say for Canadian environmental law, it's actually, 
is actually quite similar. Um, BC, British Columbia, where I live, it's um, the provinces are a little bit different. I would say British Columbia is probably one of the more um, strict when it comes to environmental laws. And it, it, I don't know if it's a West Coast thing or what, but I would say British Columbia is sort of like the California of Canada. Alberta is kind of like the Texas. Um, then you've got <laughs> Fred. <laughs> so here we go. Um, and then and it's interesting, you've got the maritime provinces like Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. They kind of are sort of like New Englandy type. I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but they do kind oh. of line up. Oil and gas is huge in Alberta. Um, it, it is effectively the Texas of Canada. And um, you will, and not to stare, you know, it's bad to generalize or stereotype, but a lot of my colleagues who are from Alberta are very um, pro-pipeline. Um, it's it's their bread and butter, um, effect you know essentially. So they they loved Donald Trump, um, you know. And it's uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, I've had to stay quiet many times, um, you know, in in the in the last year. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it, it is it's interesting. So I would say British Columbia probably has probably uh, the environmental laws are a bit stronger here. Um, the politics is probably a little more pro-green in British Columbia. Uh, Vancouver is is all about, you know, the bike lanes and 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 the uh, the hipsters and the the whole bit. So it's uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, you know, and that's I think what what were what have been some of the biggest obstacles that be um, both professionally and personally moving from. You know, moving from a from a place in which you were born and raised, which was, um, you know, Southern California up to, you know, up to where you are now. Obstacles, I would think, um, other than the weather, are just, <laughs> it rains, you know, it's funny, it rains like half the year up here. And so whenever there's like an eclipse or some sort of cool celestial event and, you know, Somebody will say, oh, somebody will say, oh, did you see such and such? I'm like, no, do you know where I live? I don't see Jack half the year. <laughs> oh, I did not see that. But anyway, uh, as far as obstacles, I would say it was a bit of a learning curve, uh, um, learning the nomenclature. You know, they don't say federal land in Canada. They say crown land, you know, because technically is yeah. Canada still uses kind of the old colonial um, nomenclature associated with the royal family. And, and so that so that was a bit of a learning curve. I so, but you know, you eventually you pick it up. The uh, obstacles. I think any obstacles I might have had in my career have really been self-imposed. You know, when you're when you're working on a whole new type of project for a type of energy, you know, I'm um, that you had zero experience, and I still remember when the first wind power project came across my desk and I hadn't worked on one before. I had only worked on oil and gas. Um, the first solar power project I ever reviewed was actually in the US. Again, I hadn't um, looked at one before. So there was a little bit of a, okay, this these it's, it's a different technology. Um, everyone thinks that renewables are like kind of like the godsend, the be all solve all for everything. It's not necessarily the case. You, you still have issues with solar and wind. There's the actual siding, you know, siding of the footprint. Um, there's, there's pros and cons to really every single energy source. 
So I think just obstacles would mainly just be the new things I've had to learn over the years. Um, as far as the people I've been working with, I've, I've not had an issue either being female or if people have perceived me as a minority, you, again, you might get the odd jerk or you, you might get the odd situation, but generally speaking, and this goes to something Fred, you, you brought up earlier. Um, I've always felt supported and encouraged some of the senior people that I've worked for and with in the last several years. I almost feel like there's been certain situations because I might be the only female in the meeting or the only girl in the boardroom. I've, I'm treated a little bit extra nicely. So and just pros, you know, you might have mixed feelings about that, but, um, and it's a lot of these, a lot of these men are very senior to me. And a lot of them may have daughters my age who are also engineers or scientists. So, you know, I think there's, there's, I've had those experiences where people have been a little bit extra welcoming or extra trying to include me or, um, um, so the, any obstacles career, career wise, I personally haven't experienced, but, uh, that certainly doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to other women. Sure. And, and it has, it has for sure. Um, the group I'm currently with, the company I work for, I worked for in California as well. It was really just an office transfer from a Southern California office to the Vancouver office. Um, the group I work with in our Vancouver office is actually mostly women. Uh, we're not all engineers. It's just a handful of us, but we're pretty much all STEM. There's, we have um, engineers, scientists, you know, wildlife biologists, um, the, the whole bit. And there's a lot of women. And in fact, one of the, one of our subcontractors, I've only seen maybe like two men come into our office from that particular contractor. It's, it's a lot of women. So it, it's kind of interesting. I'm reading these statistics and I'm wondering where are all the girls and women? How come they're not, they're not joining us. And then I look at my immediate colleagues and I'm like, we're strong here. We've got plenty of women. We've got plenty of people of color. We've got seats at the table. We are part of the dialogue. So uh, it may be, I just, it, you know, it, it had lucky choices along the way. I don't know, lucky options. And it may be, it might be the type of engineering. I think environmental engineering might, might have a little bit more women, maybe other types of engineering. Um, but I, I would say the obstacles have all been self-imposed. You have to, you know, the, learning, learning new things, you know, you have to be confident in yourself. You have to, um, um, kind of encourage yourself, you know, that, you know, that you can take on something new, take on, take on a new challenge. And so I, I think it's just growing pains, learning curves, things like that. The, the transition to Canada was really other than, you know, learning the, the nomenclature of the laws and learning what the laws are called and how to implement them. The transition to Canada really wasn't really wasn't that difficult other than that. And also because when I first started up here, I was still working on U.S. projects. So and it took a, it took probably two to three years for me to start taking ownership of Canadian projects once I got the feel for how it worked up here. What kind of projects are you working on right now? Um, I can talk about. I can talk about with public. Uh, but I, I can't go into too much detail, but I've worked on everything from um, a, a wind power project uh, to um, a couple of pipeline projects. I can talk about one I worked on a, a few years ago. It was, it, it was, it's finished and it's, it's been on the news. 
this was a um a natural gas pipeline that was actually going through right by where I live actually in Metro Vancouver. And there was a sitting pipe, uh, gas line in the ground already, but it was, it was dated. It was installed in the fifties and it was, it no longer met the demands of the community. Metro Vancouver has exploded, you know, in recent decades. So it was basically an upgrade. It was a pipeline upgrade project. Uh, when you have a, a, a pipeline project, there are so there's so much work and so much planning and so many so many different aspects that go into the execution of something like this. This particular one was going through a highly urban um, area. You had everything from municipal rights, municipal laws, um, um, residential concerns, um, all the environmental concerns, all of the construction logistics, indigenous rights. If you go through an area that is the traditional territory of a particular indigenous group, up here in Canada, indigenous groups are referred to as First Nations. Um, a particular First Nation, uh, you do need to consult with them by law. And they do, they do require a seat at the table for a lot of the permits that you would, you would need to apply for. So the types of projects, and, I, and actually currently I'm full-time on another pipeline project that I, I can't really talk about a lot, but... Um, you will have, man, it can take years. Um, you have to demonstrate how you're going to mitigate any impacts to wildlife habitat, noise, air pollution, um, um, land resources, vegetation, fish, birds, like the whole bit. Um, is, is this product going to be shipped offshore? Then you've got, you know, the marine element, marine protection. I, and I think that what, what I would wish for the public to know, um, there's the actual real work that's being done behind the scenes with a huge team of people. And they're a mix of, you know, all of the planners, the engineers, the environmental folks, the scientists, and we're all putting together all this information, applying for all these permits, engaging with the regulators, meeting with meeting with the mayors meeting with you know everyone we need to in order to execute this project get all the approvals we need and and i think a lot of people aren't aware of the amount of work that goes into a, a, a project like this and then they kind of will see a headline or they will see you know an opposition group that's opposed to the project and they may only get one side of a story so for what i do for consulting it, it's enabled a bit of a a bit of a backstage pass to how some of these huge projects are executed. And then you kind of see a media spin. Um, I, I, I certainly don't, there's been, there's been um, projects around the world, around the country that I, I personally would never support. I haven't worked on, but I personally would never support. So I do understand people um, maybe having concerns or in opposition to a particular particular project, but um, a lot of times what's portrayed in the media and the reality of a certain um, project are completely do different things. You know, the media, the, the media doesn't always report the news. Sometimes they create the news. And so true. I think that for the projects I've worked on recently, um, the, the one that I was talking about that was going through Metro Vancouver, that one did get fully permitted. I, I was one of the permitting leads on that project. It was constructed. It actually went right right behind where I live. And it was quite noisy, by the way. Um, 
and it did get installed and it serves the local community. And yeah, it is a nuisance. You will have to block traffic. You will have to close down lanes. There is a construction period up here when the weather is not that great from November to April. You do have to kind of strategically, you know, uh, construct, you know, plan your construction phases, you know, in order to, in order, so that the road conditions will be suitable. Um, you do have to meet, uh, you do have to align with the bird windows. If you're going to go through a, a habitat or have to, uh, you're going to have to remove any trees along the corridor. You do have to do it in a time when there's, there, there are non-nesting periods. Like you, that all, all that stuff is accounted for. So th those are the types of projects I get involved with and, and they're quite complex, but they're really interesting. Yeah. Cause you know, I'm, I, when you were talking about that, about that window of good weather time, I, I didn't think about that because here in, here in California, it rains maybe yeah. five days out of the, out of the oh. year. You yeah, know, well, I, here it's ridiculous. You know, with, <laughs> with some of the harsh weather conditions, you know, I think BC is actually one of the better provinces, but in like Saskatchewan or some of like interior, like the yeah. middle of Canada, oh, it's, the weather's terrible and the road conditions are awful. So the summertime is kind of when they take up, you know, they'll take up all the lanes doing all the upgrades. So it's, yeah, you do kind of have to work around the weather up here a, a little bit. Um, it's not necessarily around the rain, but more around the cold. Okay. Yeah. So what are what are the three most important things you, you wish people know about what what you see within your chosen field? Um I think probably that they don't necessarily see um the teamwork that's involved. I think mm -hmm. they always will see, like for example, an oil and gas proponent butting heads with like an, you know, an, an environmental group. Whereas what I see in the planning is, is everyone kind of working alongside each other and, and to, to assume that someone with a strong, you know, um, someone who considers himself or herself a strong environmentalist or scientist doesn't understand that the world has energy needs to be met that's that's not a fair assumption to assume that someone who might work for an oil and gas company doesn't care about you know environmental issues that's not a fair that's not what i see um sure there can be some differences in how things are executed but generally i the projects i've worked on there, there is a very much you know a lot of teamwork during the planning and execution of these projects so i i for me it's been a positive thing um I also see, you know, the, the passion in which a lot of us execute our roles. Uh, for for me, I'm more on the permitting and regulatory side, but I'm in a ton of meetings where I'm hearing the concerns for from Indigenous groups and First Nations. We have people on our team that that's their sole role is external relations and engaging with First Nations and Indigenous groups, or with or with local communities. We've got people who are do do that full time, but when it comes to the actual teamwork we're pretty much all there. And in fact, the project I'm working on now, uh, we've got two town halls set up uh, in late November where we're basically just gonna be there in an auditorium, the public's gonna show up and we just sit there and we're asked questions and we're there all evening. Um, um, and we're and in some projects you're required to do that, but in some projects, uh, the proponent will go above and beyond because they want, they want the local community to be able to voice their concerns and they want to be able to address them if they can. Sometimes you can't, you can't please everybody, but, but a lot of, a lot of times you can. Um, 
So I think for three things, I would say the efforts made by the proponents, um, the, the teamwork that goes in into these projects. And then, I, and I think also, yeah, the, the passion and the pride in our work that we take, it, it's, it is really cool to see a project, you know, regardless of, of whether it's local or, or broad, a wind power project I did spend a little bit of time on was based in Mozambique. And so I did go up out, out there to kind of kick it off. That was four years ago, actually. Yeah, I kicked off the wind power project and then I moved on to something else and then and someone else took over that. But um, it is kind of cool to see a project go from inception, planning, the construction phase. And then when it you kind of flip the switch metaphorically and it's up and running and you might read about it in the newspaper, um, it's kind of it's kind of cool to say, man, I knew that project. I can say I knew it when, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I worked on an Alaska project. It was based on the North Slope. I never got to go to the North Slope. I only traveled to Anchorage for meetings. But um, I didn't know. I left that project just before construction started. And that was when I moved up here to Canada. That project is called Point Thompson. If, if you Google it, you can read all about it. But it went into operation, I think, in 2013 or 14. And one of my old bosses from that project sent me the news link that kind of just said that, you know, hey, he said, hey, look. And I went, oh, my God. And I said those exact words. I wrote back, I can say I knew it when, you know, every that, that was a two-dimensional project on paper. And that thing is now up and running and, and will be for the next, you know, 30 to 50 years. Who knows? But uh, it's, it's quite cool. From, from a career perspective, it's quite satisfying sure. to kind of to see things in operation. It doesn't always happen. I've spent a lot of time on projects where you do all these studies and then they're shelved and it, you know, and the, the uh, client may or may not decide to execute it. So that, that certainly happened, but yeah. Wow. Marie, you have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and I love hearing all about it and I appreciate you, you know, sharing it all with us today and our listeners. As we um, start to bring the podcast to a close, we like to ask our listeners or our guests to share with our listeners what your call to action is. So if you have like one or two takeaways for an individual, what is your call to action? My call to action would be never stop finding, never stop exploring your passions. Um you know, they have that cliche quote, you know, find your passions or whatever. I kind of think that's not really how it works. I think that you've, that you just intuitively know things that grab your interest and, and grab your heart. And so your next step is to go and find ways to explore it. Um, I know we had talked briefly about, you know, my other interests like photography and, and things like that, yeah. that all, those things all came up by accident. I lost my mom at a young age. I was 18. She had um, she had colon cancer. Literally, she died my very first semester at USC. We had her funeral in January, and I was back at school the following week. Um, years later, um, come to find when I was actually turning 30, um, I found um, a nonprofit that, um, based on the East Coast, that happened to be called Susie's Cause which was my mom's name. And it was all about a colon cancer prevention and research, got involved with them. Years later after that, I happened to pick up an interest in photography and was able to connect to, connect the two. I started posting my photographs 
on like Facebook and things like that, got a little bit of a following and at the encouragement of friends, I started selling it. And any, I don't make a lot on that, but any profits I do make from photography, it will go to the Colon Cancer Foundation. Um, so I, I would say a call to action would be for anyone. Explore any interests you have. I think having a, di- a diverse set of interests is, is so important and enjoy the surprises along the way. You know, as, as we get older, um, I think one of the funnest things about getting older, and I'm kind of going to paraphrase something that David Bowie actually said. He said, yeah, my, he's my, he's kind of like my rock idol. He said something to the effect of aging is an extraordinary process in which you become the person you were always meant to be. So I think what he meant by that is, is, um, you know, you're, you're continuing to grow whether you get into your your 50s, your 70s, or even into your 90s, you're continuing to learn more things about yourself. You know, David Bowie was cranking out albums, you know, two days before he passed away. So he, you know, I I think that enjoy the journey, enjoy the surprises that come along the way, enjoy the new interests you're going to accrue, you know, inevitably. And, you know, explore areas that spark your interest and, and develop those skills to, to contribute to something that's beyond yourself. Kind of like what you guys are doing. Just by having this podcast, I did go onto your podcast at, uh, last night and looked at some of your other guests. And it is really cool what you guys are doing. You, you guys have guests from all different kinds of backgrounds. And, and I certainly want to listen to a lot of those. So, yeah. What do we have? We have like five different continents now, I think, right? Right, really? Like, yeah, we've. Wow, we've that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just. Uh, well, you know what? If we count Antarctica, because we've had researchers who have been to our Antarctica, I think. That's right. We're yeah. probably. I'm trying to think what continent we haven't had actually. Now we maybe we've had all seven. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, we uh, yeah we've had Africa. That was she was she was. One that's of amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually, yeah, I think you're right, Fred. I think we have all seven continents if we count our researchers who have been to Anna. Yeah, I just, I just find people and I track them down and hey, Fred's the, yeah, he's the people person. <laughs> I'm the technical person back here. So it's a, it's a dynamic duo, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Marie, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of um, your expertise and your knowledge with us. If people wanted to get in touch with you and connect with you and, um, you know, just find out more, what what would you like to share with them and how to do that? My email address is fine. The email you guys have. Okay. Okay. 